0: Guten Tag, ladies and gentlemen, this is Tim Ferriss, and this is another edition of the Tim Ferriss Show. I'm going to start off with one of my favorite quotes, and I might do more of this if you like it, each episode leading with one of my favorite quotes. And this quote is from Lucius Aeneas Seneca, often abbreviated to Seneca, and it is, "'Anger is an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than to anything on which it is poured.'" very, very true and very fortune cookie-like, but Seneca was eminently quotable for that and very criticized by his contemporaries in some cases because of it. My guest this episode is Sam Harris. People often ask me, what blogs do I read regularly and what people do I admire as writers? And one of them is certainly Sam Harris. His blog is incredible. You can visit him Online at samharris.org, he has a PhD in neuroscience and he's also a very well-known writer. Uh, he has authored several New York Times bestsellers, including The End of Faith. He has written shorter books like Lying, which is a short treatise on lying and the implications of lying, How to Get Around It, uh, which I was a proofreader for. I'm very honored to be a proofreader for. And he is a very controversial fellow. Uh, I find many of his views not to be as controversial as they are when misunderstood, but in this episode, we talk about everything from psychedelics to drug use to religion to spirituality, everything in between. Uh, there are many topics that we would like to discuss in an episode two or a continuation of this, so please let me know. Let Sam know, at samharris.org on Twitter, if you like this, and we will do more of it. Hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening optimal minimal at this altitude
1: i can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking can i ask you a personal question
0: now what is the in a time what if i did the opposite i'm a cybernetic organism living tissue over metal
1: endoskeleton
0: sam harris my good man thank you for coming on the show i appreciate it thanks for having me congratulations on the podcast thank you thank you very much i was trying to turn back the clock and figure out how we first met or connected and i couldn't figure it out i was actually hoping that you could tell me do you recall offhand how that came to to be
1: i I, I think we met in a bathroom at the ted conference (laughs) Oh my God,
0: that's right.
1: Yeah, it's one of those awkward moments where you both leave the urinal and then oh have to introduce God, each other.
0: I totally forgotten yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. that is uh, that's that is a memory. How did I forget that? That that's like, <laughs> that makes me worry about my 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 sort of cognitive yeah. health.
1: But, the decision whether you shake hands or not at that point. Is, yeah, it uh, was
0: it was extremely extremely awkward. Yet huh? at the same time, exciting, which is which is not the appropriate emotion to have in the men's room because I'd been a fan of your your work for so long and I was at this extremely surreal semi-celeb dinner where I was clearly not the celebrity in the same restaurant and Mm -hmm. uh, the dessert, I remember this is part of the reason I could have been off Were brownies that were loaded with all sorts of substances that uh, were not supplied by the restaurant itself. Um, So I missed that dinner. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) May have been the the dinner you were meant to attend. Uh, Well, let's let's. I'll try to get this train back on the on the rails. For those people who may not be familiar with your work, and of course, uh, I will provide a lot in the show notes, but. I'd love to know how you currently answer the question, what do you do? If you get that question at a cocktail party or elsewhere, what do you say? Is it writer or is it something else?
1: Yeah, well, I'm mostly a writer. My background is in neuroscience and philosophy, and and I still have a toe in the water of of doing research neuroscience. I'm I'm collaborating on a uh, fMRI study with a friend at uh, USC right now, which is actually a follow-up on, uh, on work I did uh, for my PhD on on belief formation. Uh, so, I you know, depending on the context, I'm I'm a scientist, but uh, mostly I think of myself as a writer. And, and my interest in neuroscience has always been from from the the get-go was was it was always philosophical and always purpose toward. Writing and thinking about the human mind, and and so it was it was uh, it was never clear to me that I I wanted to be a, a full-time research scientist. It, it was it was always my my motive to just be able to to understand and interpret the 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 work of the thirty thousand plus neuroscientists who are who are working at this moment, and uh, use that to change our, our thinking about the, the nature of, of human subjectivity and, and all, of the, all of the ways in which those changes would affect public policy and, and how we conceive of a good life and how we think we should be living and what sort of institutions we create, etc. So it's, it's certainly author first in terms of how I show up most of the time. And these are very big topics, of course, and very
0: controversial in some cases. Uh, And we're going to touch on a lot in this conversation. We've had some great dinners. Uh, We'll we'll talk about free will. We'll talk about spiritual experience, what that means, especially in the context of science. We'll talk about guns, (laughs) uh, Uh which, like, just to add, if if you didn't have enough controversy already, uh, just to add that to the mix. Uh, But... Let's talk about the fMRI. Uh, I've spent a little bit of time at the, the Sandler Neuroscience Lab in the last six months or so with uh, the, the Ghazali team, the Adam Ghazali team, looking at fMRI. Mm-hmm. What are you looking at in this current or upcoming study? What is the, what's the subject?
1: Well, the, the first work I did with fMRI, and this was, was part of my... my and maybe you could explain to people
0: what an fMRI is also. That, that might be helpful.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's the same scanner you go into to get an MRI, a, a structural scan of your any part of your body. So it's the, the scanner is the same, but then then there are pulse sequences uh, that allow you to track blood flow changes in the brain with this this same scanner. So you get an anatomical image of the sort you would you would get of your brain if they were looking for uh, for some evidence of brain injury or disease. Uh, but then you get a you can get a statistical map of of blood flow changes uh, in more or less real time, and blood flow changes uh, track to to a, a first approximation uh, neuronal changes in neuronal firing. So so where neurons get more active, uh, the, the, that re, that real estate calls for more blood, and there's a there's a bit of a, a time lag, but the this method of observing changes in neuronal activity in, in the in the brains of healthy thinking people uh, is is pretty well validated at this point, and it's it gives you a, a, a clearer picture of what's going on in the brain than a than a, a similar me- method uh, of, of functional tracking like EEG that people are probably familiar with, where you're just mm-hmm. getting electrical changes at the surface of the, the scalp. That doesn't that, that's very hard to use to localize what's actually going on inside the brain in various structures. So, fMRI fMRI and PET are really the the best ways to to get a good local picture of of changes in blood flow. And so, I I did, uh, for my PhD work at UCLA, I studied belief and disbelief and uncertainty and looked at at what was different about a brain that believed a proposition, like 2 plus 2 equals 4, uh, versus a, a a brain that that disbelieved a proposition like two plus two equals five, and then compared both of those states to to just frank uncertainty. Uh, you know whether you give someone a an equation they can't solve and they know they can't solve it and they and they just don't know whether it's true or false. And I did that across many different domains of thinking. It wasn't just math. It was ethics. It was a, a person's autobiography. It was it was geography and. And uh, I think we had eight categories, and then we did a follow-up study where we looked at where well, we had selected the, our our subject pools to be atheists or devout Christians, and we looked at religious belief versus versus ordinary beliefs, and found that religious belief was very much like any belief. So the belief that you're sitting on a chair or that or that you're in San Francisco had something uh, important in common with the belief that Jesus was born of a virgin. Uh, etc because you which which was really my hypothesis going in that we have this one mode of representing reality in our thoughts and we do truth testing on those linguistic propositions and and it, it requires very different kinds of of processing to judge whether a mathematical statement is true versus an ethical statement like you know torturing kids is wrong you know obviously two plus two equals four to parse that and to parse a statement about torture those are those are very different operations upstream uh, in the brain, but there's a, a kind of a downstream area where they get accepted or rejected as true or false, and we found this to be in the ventromedial prefrontal cortex kind of midline in in the in the front of the brain and so we we, we did so we're now doing a follow up study. On belief, where we try to change people's beliefs in real time, wow. and look and look at is what it is to actually have your beliefs successfully changed, and and what it is to fight those, fight that evidence and argument, and and hold to your beliefs to, despite counter evidence, and so that we're in, in process on that.
0: So you're looking at the sort of physiological markers of. Someone being persuaded or not persuaded.
1: Yeah. And and we're we're doing it with with beliefs that for which we would think they would have no real strong commitment and beliefs that we know they're going to hold to tenaciously. So just to look at at, um, both sides of that.
0: Have you, uh, and I would imagine you you might have, but have you looked at the methods used to beat polygraphs? And it's traditional, if you want to look at it that way, lie detector tests.
1: Yeah well the problem with with traditional lie detectors is that they just were they just were not valid science. I mean they're mm-hmm. not based on they're not tracking deception. They're tracking anxiety in a sense right. and and then physiological arousal in a very peripheral sense. They're not even we're not talking about brain imaging. We're talking about whether somebody's palms are sweaty, right? And so there, there, are, there are many tricks to beating traditional polygraphs. But the, the, the fundamental problem is that they just were going to be beaten by happenstance anyway. You're going to have truth tellers who were who were uh, found to be liars, Nervous. and right. and and liars who were found to be truth tellers just because the the, the methodology isn't valid. And and the National Science Foundation, uh, at some point, about ten years ago, I think, came out and just said this is. This is phrenology, you know. This is not. This is not science, and and not, no important decisions should turn on this. But I th- I think we are ultimately going to have lie detectors that we we judge to be valid. I think that's that. There's no special problem in in figuring that out. And it, and if you had a belief detector, which to, to some extent we already do, to some to be based on on the work I, I did. Uh, for my phd we, you you do have have a de facto lie detector because if you can tell what somebody's believing uh, you you can tell whether they're they're representing their beliefs honestly but there are problems with 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 neuroimaging based lie detection and certainly fmri is incredibly sensitive to motion so, you know, if you were just not, if you're not going to, co- if you didn't want to cooperate with the process, you would just have to move a little too much and you'd screw up the data completely. Right. Uh, so so it's, it's,
0: uh, it's a work in progress. Do you have uh, any opinion? That, of course, you and I have talked about uh, lying quite a bit, given that you wrote a book called Lying, and I read an mm. early draft of that. It's a fantastic short read and I'm wondering if you have any opinion on micro-expressions or analysts who are paid very, very large sums of money to watch, for instance, earnings announcements of public uh-huh. companies to determine what is true, what is not, what might be an exaggeration or not. Uh, do, you have any, do you have any thoughts on that subject? Uh,
1: that's interesting. I, I didn't know people were doing that. If, I didn't know analysts were... Um uh, or or uh, entire companies dedicated VCs were were yeah. su- subjected to that kind of uh, scrutiny, but um, uh, yeah, that's that's based on Paul Ekman's work on microexpressions, and mm-hmm. and it's all it's it's very interesting. I I, sh- I don't know that anyone gets reliably good enough at it to be relied upon by. Others, I think I remember Paul Ekman was saying that the people who we think are are good at detecting lies are are basically at you know sixty percent or whatever and and most people are are just at chance and I think there there are a few. Uh, exceptions, but in, in terms of what microexpressions can get you, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think I think we're going to do much better with technology, and I, and I, and even even just facial recognition technology, I bet yeah. computers are gonna beat people now. I mean, I'm, I'm just that's just a hunch. I haven't actually followed that work, but the, if, if they're not beating people now, they're eventually going to going to beat people. I would expect. But what you really want more than the facial display of emotion, as you as you want to understand. The neurophysiology of deception and um, and just just propositional knowledge is what what someone knows and what they what they are representing and and when those two diverge, and we have that to some degree. So, so there's a graduate student in, in the same lab I did my PhD work in who who just grabbed my data a couple of years uh, after I acquired it and did a more sophisticated analysis on it, a what's called a machine learning analysis where they could uh, look at the the single trial level. So, it, so what happens with fMRI work is that you you're looking at, at aggregated data, you know, many many trials and and mm-hmm. over many many people. Um, but if you have the right statistical tools, you can you can look at single the single a uh, single question in a single person and see uh, differentiate uh, see whether you can differentiate belief from disbelief, for instance. And and uh, this this woman Pamela Douglas found that she with something like 95% accuracy could tell whether a subject believed or disbelieved a proposition in, in my paradigm and this, in my paradigm wasn't even set up to make this that particularly easy to do but uh, you know that those machine learning techniques allow us to do that and i think that's only going to get s- stronger that effect and mm-hmm. at a certain point we we'll, we will we'll all know that we have mind reading machines in some basic sense there may be ways to to foil them but it's it's just it's you know if you're thinking about a, a blue house, you know I say blue house and you have to think about it. Uh, you kind of helplessly think about it on some level. You have, mm-hmm. Just just the mere understanding of the phrase blue house uh, has gotten something into your head, despite your best effort. You can't you can't pretend you haven't understood these words, and that is reflected in areas of your brain that are going to be. I mean, they're they're reasonably easy to discriminate now, but at a certain point, it's it's. I'm quite confident we'll have a machine which will, you know, we you'll be able to say what 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 phrase did he just hear, and it's going to kick out blue house, and it's going to kick out kick it out for you, and it's going to kick it out for me, and um, that's that's mind reading. That's amazing.
0: That could have some incredible. Just as a as a a language learning fanatic, that could have some incredible applications for communication. Let alone. Uh, oh, thought, yeah. Thought detection. Yeah. Let's. Uh, I want to take a step back. I, I, I love talking about this stuff, but there's so many subject areas that the neuroscience touches upon, that the science or the scientific method t- touches upon. But taking it down to an even more sort of fundamental level, I, what I'd love, because you and I both have the experience of being misquoted rampantly <laughs> – in, in the media, and uh, or having the game of telephone where where someone quotes you out of context and then something takes on a life of its own. What what are the beliefs that you do hold that are the most controversial? And just let's just say in the last several years, uh, just just so just so people coming into this who may be familiar with reading about you secondhand or thirdhand can get a baseline on on some of the things that you believe that that are very hotly debated.
1: Right. So this is across the board in all my work. We're not talking about neuroscience per se, right? No. This is this is across the yeah. board. Yeah. because so, cause I've I've touched many different topics, which which though there are connections, I, I see them more or less all of a piece. They mm-hmm. they, they can seem quite uh, unrelated. So that's you know, totally fine. I've fun. written about. I've written about gun control, I've written a, a lot about the problem of uh, organized religion and the conflict between religion and science, and um, so I'll just I'll just list the, the most controversial points. One that keeps coming up is my criticism of Islam, especially worried about Islam uh, more so than than other religions, and I've uh, given my reasons for this ad nauseum uh, the problem in in the current environment is that any focus on islam is easily uh, not easily but it but it seems to be everywhere attacked as synonymous with bigotry and and bizarrely synonymous with racism so right. as though being muslim we're we are being a, a, a member of a race so the the thing to tease out here is that the reason why everyone's confused on this point is that one we we have one word religion, which covers this wide range of preoccupations, and it's not a very useful word it's a word like sports you know right. and and so sports covers tie boxing and it covers. Shuffleboard or or curling or what you know so something that that has basically no implication of violence or even physical fitness and uh, not to disparage uh, curlers everywhere but it's, it's, it's what, what what do what do tie boxers and curlers have in common I mean, apart from breathing not a whole hell of a lot and yet they're both sports um, and so if you want to get at what people are actually doing and the kinds of risks they're running and and why they're running these risks and, and what sort of uh, attributes you need to succeed at these various athletic tasks, you you don't get very far just talking about sports. And the same is true with religion. And so we have the religion of Islam uh, and we have a religion like Jainism, uh, which is an Indian religion that doesn't have that many subscribers, but it's there's almost nothing in common between these religions except the fact that they both rely on faith in a way that I would argue is totally unjustified to make claims about the nature of reality. But the claims they make are quite different, and uh, the the moral attitudes they form on the basis of these these claims are are completely different. So Jane, the Jains, for instance, are truly nonviolent. I mean, this is this is the the, the prototypical religion of peace. Where the the more extreme you get as a Jane, the less violent you become. So you can't even kill insects. You can't. You worry about killing bacteria. You know, there's the, the, the super extreme Janes where, where some wear cheesecloth over their mouth so they don't inhale a bug. They they look at the ground continuously when they walk so they don't step on ants. I mean, they're 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 obviously vegetarian and they're they're just deranged by their commitment, not to harm anything, no matter what. Now, those people are not going to become suicide bombers. No matter how we mistreat the Jains, they're not going to start flying planes into our buildings, and they're not going to form a death cult that worships martyrs. It's just not going to happen. It's just right. it, 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 You can't make sense of it in light of their core beliefs. Well, it's with, with antithetical Islam,
0: the core doctrine.
1: Yeah, and, and, and with Islam, by comparison, you have a doctrine of jihad, which really is a doctrine of holy war. You have a doctrine of, of martyrdom, which... Which says that the the only certain and swift way to get directly into paradise and be with Allah is to be martyred, uh, and it's it's incumbent upon every uh, Muslim to to defend the faith uh, with violence when the faith is attacked, and it's it's not an accident that people think that cartoonists and novelists should be murdered for. For blaspheming and, and and that apostates should be killed because the 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 penalty for apostasy under Islam really is death, so you know if, if, I, if I convert to Islam today and tomorrow I say, you know I, I just took another look at the Quran and it's just it 's just total bullshit i 'm deconverting right now. the penalty for that is death, and there 's no one who can tell you that it isn 't except those who are ignorant or lying about the faith so so it 's totally rational to be concerned about. Uh, Islam uh, at this moment in a way that one isn't concerned about Jainism or Buddhism or Mormonism or any any other religion, and given the level of white guilt in this world and our and our uh, understandable commitment to pluralism and multiculturalism, and and our guilt over the crimes of uh, or the errors we have made in our own foreign policy and the and the previous crimes of colonialism, it's just it's so easy for. People to claim that a criticism of Islam is a criticism is, a, is tantamount to bigotry or racism, and they get away with it in every liberal newspaper on earth at the moment. It's just it's, 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 they've almost successfully made it impossible to to parse this issue, and it's it's a huge problem. So that's that's the most that, that's the the first thing that's hugely controversial in in my bio. And then wrapped up in that are lies about positions I've taken. Uh, so for instance, in in my first book, The End of Faith, I talk about the, the essentially the game theoretic problem of of uh, nuclear proliferation and the possibility of nuclear war. And this is very brief. It's like two paragraphs. I talk about how you know we we had this this doctrine of mutually assured destruction with the Soviet Union, and that worked because no one, no significant number of people on either side, were eager to die, and get to paradise. And and, and I, I said that we're not going to be able to have a doctrine of mutually assured destruction, with a regime that has long-range nuclear weapons that can reach the major cities of the United States and Europe that is peopled by essentially the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or or the the, the psychological equivalent of the 19 hijackers. If we we are in the presence of people who we are sure are really ready to be martyred and and they love death as much as we love life, uh, and we believe that that's who we're in the presence of, and they have now have this technology, then the first use of nuclear weapons becomes a matter of life and death. And it, it's, it's just an obscene situation for us to wander into, and we have to anticipate it. Now, that all got summarized by some very unscrupulous people as, I call for an immediate first strike on the entire Muslim world, and I'm eager to kill, you know, 500 million people. And there, there's some people like you know, real journalists like Chris Hedges or people who used to be real journalists who have gone around telling people that I have called for a nuclear first strike on the Muslim world, which is, which is absolutely untrue. But it, I don't think there's a comment thread on me anywhere that doesn't have somebody in it saying this guy wants to, to, to drop nuclear bombs on, on 100 countries. So in any case, it's, no,
0: it's, are- it's, it's, it's frustrating in cases as someone who uh, feels that they know you and have, at least has spent time with you. I feel like one of your gifts is being able to, in, in many cases, dispassionately and rationally judge the facts or the circumstances and then come to conclusions that you might describe whether or not they are popular. And this makes you a target. And obviously, you know, yeah. if, if it bleeds, it leads type of journalism will lead to mischaracterization, which is really unfortunate. Uh, and I, and the, there, there are many things that are sort of artfully omitted, like your – uh, this, was, this was something I heard in the, the Joe Rogan podcast uh, episode that uh, I guess maybe one of several you've done, but your thoughts on Malala. So, I mean, I, I'd, uh-huh. I'd be curious to hear you just elaborate on that because it's so often sort of omitted – uh, that, I mean, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, you, she was your pick for the Nobel Peace Prize. Am I, am I right in saying that? Or would you? Yeah, oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. She, she just des- deserved it, uh, more than almost anyone I could think of. But I think it's also a very good thing. She didn't get it because her security concerns would be even worse as a result. It, it, it's just, it's amazing. I mean, these are things that people don't want to really reflect on. But when she was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, her popularity in Pakistan went way down, and the Taliban has kept uh, asserting that they were they're going to kill her, and she she would be even more of a target had she won it. But yeah, no, I said she she was the best thing to come out of the Muslim world in a thousand years. I, I think she's she is just an absolute hero and someone who should be, deserves all of the, the celebration she's she's received. It's just. This this is the thing that that reveals what's so crazy about this this whole Islamophobia meme. This idea that that criticism of Islam is tantamount to some kind of bigotry or an animus against Muslims as people. say so every, everything I say about Islam is I'm saying about the doctrine of Islam and its consequences uh, on the behavior of uh, of people and and their thinking. Uh, but um, this has nothing to do with 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 being bigoted against Muslims as people, and certainly not bigoted against dark-skinned people or Arab people, and one of my main concerns about Islam is the amount of suffering visited upon Muslim women throughout the developing world. So people like Malala, you know, she was shot in the head by a a Taliban gunman for the crime of going to school, and uh, what scares me about that situation so much is that in, in most circumstances you think, well, any guy who could do that must be a psychopath. He must be a you know, some guy like James Holmes or Adam Lanza, or one of these spree killers we we have here, who represents nothing other than his own psychopathology. Uh, but that's not true. That, 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 you know, I don't know anything specific about the the this Taliban gunman, but what I know is that you it's statistically impossible that all jihadists are psychopaths, and we know enough about the biographies of of many of these men to know that these are not d- d- low functioning. Depressed, suicidal people who have nothing to live for. These are uh, you know, the, 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 functionally the quarterback of the football team. Decides to he's got he's, he's got lots of opportunity in life, and he may have a degree as an engineer. But then he, he also decides that dying uh, for, in defense of the faith and getting to paradise is the is the best use of his life. And uh, oppressing women who who should be who are essentially. Have no other purpose in life but to reflect well on the the uh, honor of the of their men. Uh, oppressing them is is a totally rational thing to do uh, and and a necessary thing to do. And so, yeah, I think I think Malala uh, is a great uh, symbol uh, and deserves all the praise she's gotten. Uh, the reason why she is celebrated to the degree she is, however, apart from you know, her obvious virtues as a as a as a speaker and a person, is that. She has not repudiated Islam. She is she is Muslim uh, and uh, and a believer, and you know still just a kid in in many respects. And but someone who's very much like her, who who is uh, often vilified uh, on the political left, is um, uh, my friend Ayan Hirsi Ali, who's a Somali woman who mm-hmm. who emigrated to uh, Holland, f- fleeing a forced marriage when she was 20 and very quickly learned Dutch and uh, got a degree in political science and became a member of the Dutch parliament. Uh, and there in parliament fought for the, the rights of, of Muslim women in uh, living in Holland who were, were living with men who had imported all of this, these same practices of female genital mutilation and uh, other forms of coercion. And her collaborator on a film, Theo van Gogh, was, was killed, uh, and I, a note, uh, Sabornian s- M- Ion's murder, was, was pinned to his ch- chest with a knife, and she has ever since lived in a s- essentially perpetual flight from theocrats who want to kill her, and also in per- under the perpetual shadow of criticism from liberals who attack her as a bigot, because she says, in, in, in very much in the same terms I'm expressing here, that there's there's a unique problem with Islam at this moment in history, that Islam is not just like every other religion. It is certainly not a religion of peace, and all of the oppression we see of, of women in the Muslim world is not an accident. It actually has a very s- strong scriptural foundation. For the crime of saying those things, I mean, as a woman who came from Somalia who suffered herself, female genital mutilation and and has has been running from from bearded men who want to kill her she still doesn't have the right to say that in in uh you 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 might have noticed that she was just invited and then disinvited to at by brandeis university she was given offered an honorary degree and then there was protest by a handful of uh muslim organizations uh, and they disinvited her and 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 r- removed the honorary degree our liberal institutions are getting bullied by theocrats under the guise of political correctness and multiculturalism, and it's it's really uh, it's depressing. So if you if you
0: take this, I mean, I've, I've observed this uh, particularly, for lack of a better description, I mean, sort of uh, the people who are most worried of being labeled racist themselves, sort of liberal white males, are the first mm-hmm. to dogpile on people. Uh, almost in a, in a new form of like McCarthyism to label others racist, which is sort of the the, the ultimate cop out in terms of character uh, assassination in, in in a lot of ways. And what is, what is the if we take that behavior, which is becoming very very common, and that it then becomes this horrible sort of self perpetuating phenomenon where people are more and more disinclined to speak out against, uh, things they, they think to be wrong for fear of being labeled a racist or whatnot. If this sort of trend continues unabated, like, where does that take us? I mean, where do you think that's going to end up where it's like, all right, you can't no cartoons, no this, no teddy bears, no, like wh- when you sort of extrapolate this out, if there are people who intervene to try to correct this, this sort of madness on some level,
1: what, what happens? I mean, where do we end up? Well, to some degree, we've we've slid halfway there. I think. I, I think we have. And uh, I, I argued this at, at one point on my blog I, in a um, a piece. Um, I think the title was uh, "The Freedom to Offend an Imaginary God," which got uh, a fair amount of play at, at some point when it came out. Something that happened in the news. I now forget what, and I wrote about it there. And the point I made is that we we actually have already forfeited our free speech on this topic. Voluntarily, I mean, we've we just we've just given it away with both hands. Uh, we we t- technically still have free speech, uh, but just think about, and the example I gave in this this piece is: just think about the the, the play, of the Book of Mormon, and imagine trying to stage a play, a similar play about Islam. I mean, what would have happened? So, what happened with the Book of Mormon is that the Mormon Church wasn't happy with it, and the way they protested is they took out ads in Playbill for the mormon faith, right, which is a you know, this totally cute good-natured b- b- maneuver to to try to trumpet the, the virtues of their their religious bamboozlement in the context of its criticism in this in this play. But no one can seriously argue that we could state that you know that Trey Parker and Matt Stone could have staged a play about Islam and when when they when they when they put Muhammad on um, their cartoon south park they put him in a hidden in a bear suit there was a bear i don't know if you remember this but there was a bear no. who was supposed to be muhammad in a bear suit uh, and even that guy had to get taken off the air because of the, the security concerns uh, raised at, at, at comedy central so we have been successfully bullied into self-censorship on this topic uh and uh, it, ha- it has a huge cost. I mean, when those uh, the Danish cartoons were published, there was not a magazine in the United States who would publish them except for one, the Free Inquiry, which is this this tiny atheist magazine, uh, and that even that was removed from the stands at every uh, board I think it was Borders at the time uh, in, in the country. So and and the, the television stations wouldn't show these cartoons. No one could see how benign these cartoons were, because in all the controversy about them, we wouldn't show the cartoons to ourselves because uh, because we were so afraid of the consequences. And yet, they were genuinely newsworthy because the, the thing to have recognized about those cartoons is they, they were totally benign. I mean, these were the most boring cartoons anyone's ever seen, and yet people were being killed. In dozens of countries over them, I mean, there were literally riots and embassy burnings and um and this and this we have this crazy double standard where we have politicians saying that no no, no, this has nothing to do with Islam. Islam is really a religion of peace. And yet at the same politicians at the same moment are beefing up security on their embassies and closing embassies and taking heroic measures not to be the object of violence that they know is coming. Because of how fanatical millions upon millions of of Muslims are in dozens, scores, really, of countries, and this self-censorship is not just happening in uh, the developing world or in Europe, that, that arguably has a more radicalized Muslim population. It's happening in the states, and it's it's just a huge. I mean, so I you know I have security concerns. Uh, I don't, they're nothing like. Uh, someone like my, my friend Ayan's or or uh, uh, Malala's, uh, but it, it's just people see what a hassle it is to deal with the consequences of, of making sense on this issue, and the hassle ranges from you know, real security concerns where you, you you have to take steps, you know, not to get injured or killed, to just the hassle of, of of being criticized as a racist by uh, people who haven't just haven't thought this thought this through, or people who are just cynically using uh, that angle to to defame
0: you. Got it. No, that makes sense. I um, I want to I want to shift gears just a little bit uh, sure. because they're all a lot of these are very interrelated. There's the sort of anti religion. It's a canon of work that you have, which you're very well known for, but, um, and correct me if this quote is incorrect, but there's a quote here that is, quote, there's nothing irrational about seeking the states of mind that lie at the core of many religions. Compassion, awe, devotion, feelings of oneness are surely among the most valuable experiences a person can have, end quote. Assuming that's true, and you and I have, of course, talked about altered states and you've written about altered states, I'd love to just dig into that expression, or that quote rather, and... Look at the alternate approaches uh, that you've perhaps explored or researched related to achieving some of these valuable states.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so in the beginning of of my career, as, as you point out, I, I've spent a lot of time criticizing religion and it's criticizing it for its its obvious harms. And uh, but one of its one of its harms that's not so obvious is that it keeps us. Talking about this positive end of human experience, the, the self transcendence and and uh, uh, highly normative states of consciousness uh, in first century or seventh century terms, and and most people, most of the time, think that you have the only way to capture quote spiritual experience and and one's interest in it and the ways in which one would would explore it is to to some degree indulge the the myth the myth intoxicated language of uh... the iron age uh... there's just no way to talk about it otherwise science hasn't given us the tools to talk about it secular culture doesn't give us the tools to talk about it and so we're left talking about being christians and muslims and jews and buddhists and and organize our lives around those 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 really incompatible the the incompatible truth claims and doctrines that, that you find in those religions uh, and people, very smart people who are secular in every other way, think there 's just no there's no alternative to that and so one of my main interests now is in articulating an alternative because clearly there are extraordinary experiences that people have, and many of these experiences do lie at the core of of m- many of our religions and so you mean know, to take Jesus as an obvious example and who who knows who Jesus actually was and and you know what what is historically true in the in the New Testament but let's just say for argument's sake that that he, there really was a guy who loved his neighbor as himself and had this extraordinarily charismatic effect on the people around him and bore witness to this possibility of of a kind of radical self-transcendence well that clearly that whatever's true there is deeper than Christianity, and it's not—it's—it's it's not reducible to Christianity. In fact, Christianity has to be a distortion of that truth, because—and we know this because Jesus isn't the only person who's had that experience. There's the, there's the Buddha, and the may countless contemplatives through the ages have had can attest to this experience of, for lack of a better phrase, an unconditional love, and that has some relationship to what I would call self-transcendence, which which I think is even more important. Uh, and so there's there's this phenomenon that's clearly deeper than any of our uh, provincial ways of talking about it in the context of religion, uh, and, and so there's a, a deeper truth of of human psychology and uh, the nature of consciousness, and and I think we need to explore it in terms that don't require that we lie to ourselves or to our children about the nature of reality, and that we don't indulge this device of language of of picking teams in the religious uh, in the con- in the contest among religions uh, so yeah I, my my next book that's coming out in the fall is called uh, waking up a guide to spirituality without religion and it's it's about the phenomenon of self transcendence and the ways in which people can explore it without Believing anything on insufficient evidence, and, and one of the principal ways is is through various techniques of meditation, uh, mindfulness being the the uh, I think the most useful uh, uh, one to adopt first. They, you know, there's also the use of psychedelic drugs, which which is not quite the same as as meditation, but it does uh, if if nothing else reveals that that. The human nervous system is is plastic in a, in a, a very uh, important way, which means you you, you can your your experience of the world can be radically transformed. You you are tending to be who you were yesterday by virtue of various habit patterns and uh, physiological homeostasis and and uh, other things that are that are keeping you um, uh, very recognizable to yourself. But it's possible to have a very different experience and. It's possible to do that through pharmacology. It's possible to do that through some kind of crisis, or uh, it's possible to do it through a, a deliberate form of training, like meditation. And and um, it's, um, I think it's crucial to do it because we all want to be uh, as happy uh, and as fulfilled and as free of pointless suffering as we can possibly be. And there's a, all of our suffering and all of our unhappiness is a product of. Uh, how our minds are in every moment, and so if there's a way to use the mind itself to uh, improve one's capacity for, for moment-to-moment well-being, uh, which I'm convinced there is, then it, this should be potentially of interest to everybody. So, a couple of
0: quick questions on all of those subjects. Uh, so, the first, the first I'd like to touch on uh, meditation. Uh, I think we can probably touch on this briefly is something we've discussed before, uh, you along with many other people uh, who are high performers in their respective fields have recommended meditation. So I have been meditating, uh, partially in thanks to your influence uh, for some time now. Uh, is, it, is it safe to say that the meditation that you most frequently recommend to novices is Vipassana meditation or is that yeah. okay? Got it. Why, why is that? I mean, I've I've experimented with a number of different types of transcendental meditation, uh, vipassana, of course, and have taken a number of courses. Um, why that selection? Why that? Why, why well, that
1: choice? Y- yeah, it, ha- it has a few uh, obvious strengths that um, are actually not shared by by any other technique I I know of. Uh, uh, the first is that it's it doesn't it needn't presuppose any belief about anything. I mean you don't you don't have to develop a fondness for the iconography of Buddhism. Uh you don't have to care about the Buddha, you don't have to believe in rebirth or karma or I mean none of the doctrine of Buddhism need be adopted in order to get the practice off the ground and and, and never need be adopted if if uh it never makes any sense, which much of it doesn't. You don't have to become a Buddhist to do this, and you don't have to add anything strategically to your experience as a mechanism by which to meditate. So you're not adding a mantra, you're not visualizing something that isn't there. you don't have to look at a candle flame or 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 do anything to your environment to to uh, by way of artifice to to create the the circumstance of meditation. All you're doing is paying exquisitely close and and non-judgmental attention to whatever you're experiencing anyway. So and and the, and the first technique you use to to be able to train that capacity is, is to focus on your breath, which you always have with you and and is just an easy object to to focus on. But you don't need, it doesn't even have to be the breath. I mean mindfulness is just that quality of mind which allows you to pay attention to sights and sounds and sensations and and even thoughts themselves, uh, without being lost in thought and without without grasping at what is pleasant and pushing what is a unpleasant away. So just being wide open to the next sensory or emotional experience that comes uh, careening into consciousness. That that is mindfulness. And so there, it, in, in in some sense, it's not even a practice. It's just. It is just the state of not being distracted mm-hmm. and being aware. And and you have to, you, it, it feels like a practice in the beginning because it's hard to do. We're so deeply conditioned to be lost in thought and to be having this conversation with ourselves from the moment we wake up to the moment we fall asleep. We're, we're just, there's just chatter in the mind. And it's so captivating that we're not even aware of it. I mean, we're, we are essentially in a dream state and it's, it's, through, it's through this veil of thought that we go about our day and, and perceive our, our uh, environments. But we're just, we're just talking to ourselves nonstop. And until you can break that spell and begin to notice thoughts themselves as objects of consciousness just arising and passing away, you can't even pay attention to your breath or to anything else with any kind of clarity. And so it's, it, initially you have to develop some concentration and, and get mindfulness Tuned up to, so that you can you can pay attention. But once you can pay attention, it doesn't matter what you pay attention to. There's nothing in principle that is outside the meditation practice. There's nothing that's in principle a distraction. There's no, you don't you don't need a quiet environment. You can have loud construction noises going across the street, and that's just as good a circumstance for meditation as as anything else. And so that's that's the those are the main reasons why I think it's it's the in terms of being designed for export outside of Buddhist culture or religious culture generally and, and uh, becoming a tool for our intellectual lives in a secular scientific context, I think there's nothing, nothing like it.
0: What, what resources uh, so. would you suggest for someone who wants to try to educate themselves or dive in as a novice in terms of books, resources, websites uh, for, for mindfulness and meditation?
1: Yeah, well, I, I give a few on my blog. I, I wrote an article a couple of years ago entitled "How to Meditate," and if uh-huh. people Google that, they'll they'll see. I, I link to a few books and I tell people where they can go on retreats and and so I, and, I, and I briefly describe the practice. I also have given a couple of guided mindfulness meditations I, I've I've put on uh, SoundCloud, which are on my website as well. Uh-huh. So people can and and there are other guided meditations out there that people can can use and, and and in the beginning people find that very helpful to be to have somebody's voice essentially reminding them to not be lost in thought every few seconds i it, it's because what happens in the beginning for people and this this happened to me in, in my practice uh for at least a at least a year i think it was a year before i went on intensive retreat, silent retreat I was just for, you know sitting for an hour a day or so uh, just on my own as, as I was 20 or so, and essentially I was just sitting cross-legged and thinking. You know, it, it's it's so hard to notice that you're lost in thought that but, but that by tendency you're just not going to notice it. And and so in the beginning people think they're meditating and they're really just lost in thought. And it wasn't until I did it, my first 10 day. The Posner retreat, where I, I I broke through and and connected with the practice in a way that I, where I realized, wow, that was the, you know, all of that that has preceded this was really my thinking. I was meditating and not meditating, and and there there are other other landmarks along my journey that are like that, where where there was a a shift where I realized, wow, this, what I thought was happening really was not happening uh, as I thought it was. And that's a very common experience. And and, and so in the beginning, using a guided meditation can help cut through the chatter in a way that that many people can't summon on their own. Related to cutting through the chatter, people ask me,
0: well, let me take a sidestep, which is people ask me, what blogs do you read? And there really aren't many blogs that I read consistently, aside from a handful, uh, and partially I read your blog, uh, and the posts you put up because they're like feature magazine articles in many cases. And there's one you wrote in 2011 called drugs in the meaning of life. Um, and you've, Mm -hmm. you've written about this subject before. I have found uh, certain hallucinogens in particular to be very therapeutically valuable for cutting through the chatter and sort of turning that off and bringing present state awareness to you in a very high definition way, uh, when used, uh, you know, responsibly. And of course, you, as you point out in this piece, it's not not to say that everyone should should take psychedelics. But I'd be curious to know, uh, that, you know, one of the lines here. Uh, it, it needs to be read in context, of course. But, you know, I have a, do- a daughter who will one day take drugs. Of course, I'll do everything in my power to see that she chooses her drugs wisely. But a life without drugs is neither foreseeable nor, I think, desirable. And then you, and then you obviously go through sort of the how you might uh, guide her to view these different subjects. And one of the the closing lines in this paragraph is, but if she does not try psychedelic like psilocybin or LSD, at least once in her adult life, I will worry that she may have missed one of the most important rites of passage a human being can experience. And I I agree with this. I'd be curious to hear sort of what particular drugs or psychedelic substances you found most therapeutically valuable in your own life and how you suggest people think about this. Obviously, there are, uh, I mean, you have to put the legal potential legal ramifications in perspective also. But uh, what have you personally found most valuable and how so?
1: Yeah. um, Well, again, you found another paragraph where I was uh, happy to court controversy. um, (laughs) (laughs) Saying that uh, I'll be disappointed if my my daughter doesn't drop acid. Uh, But the... (laughs) So the, the caveat here, and it's the, the caveat comes out several times in that piece, is that yeah, which everybody should read. Know,
0: in full I'm not trying to pull anything out of context. I just don't want to yeah, read yeah, the whole no. thing to them now.
1: <laughs> I, 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 I stand by every word, but there there are a lot of words in there, and and the um, <laughs> the caveat really is that you know I, ha- I have an increasingly healthy respect for what can go wrong on psychedelics, uh, and wrong in a way that I think has lasting consequences for people and so i mean there's a lot that can go right with psychedelics and and to some degree i think they they they're still indispensable for a lot of people for they they certainly seem to be indispensable for me I, I don't think i ever would have discovered meditation without having taken in particular mdma but you know mdma and mushrooms and lsd all played a role for me in uh, unveiling a an inner landscape that was worth exploring. I mean, but mm-hmm. but but for that you know like a pharmacological advantage, I think I was just my my consciousness was such that you know I, I looked inside, I saw nothing of interest, and that's sort of the end of the conversation. You, know, you you tell me that there's something profound to witness about the nature of my own mind, I don't see it. You know, I just <laughs> I just want to you know get on with the next thing in the world that seems fun to do or seems Likely to lead to my success, or it, it, I, I just was, you know, a, a skin encapsulated ego who who was just trying to get on with life and succeed, and thought he was very clever, uh, and didn't have didn't have the contemplative tools to see much of anything when uh, uh, you know he he paid attention, and so that that's the situation that. Many people are in, and many smart people are in are in that position so i I'm constantly meeting scientists and philosophers and highly articulate people who spend a lot of time thinking about the nature of the human mind, and when I talk to them about meditation or really any of these philosophical issues that for which an ability to pay attention to the nature of your own consciousness is an advantage. So it's something like free will or the nature of the self or the possibility of self, self-transcendence. self I'm meeting people who have, as far as I can tell, no ability to notice <laughs> their inner lives. I, I, people who, some of them seem just simply not to have inner lives, but I, they're, they're, these are people who are very much the way I was, when I was 18 and before I had, uh, had any experience with, with any of this, there's just, you're, you're lost in thought and you don't know it. And that phrase lost in thought means nothing to you. And you don't have the tools by which to do anything with it, even if it, if it meant something to you and there's just nothing, you're, you're, you're cognitively closed to the data. Uh, and the data are uh, are there to be found what the, the most important point of which is the self you think you are is an illusion this, this sense of being a self riding around in your head uh, this feeling of i this feeling that we everyone calls i uh is an illusion that can that can be disconfirmed in a variety of ways it can be its boundaries can can be transformed in ways, or it can be completely cut through and vanish for for a moment or a minute, or potentially for the rest of one's life. And so, so it, it's it's vulnerable to inquiry, and that inquiry can take many forms. But but the the unique power of psychedelics is that whether or not they, I mean, this is there's a there's a unique power, and there's a unique unique liability. The, the the unique power and liability is that. They are guaranteed to work in some way. And this is a point that Terrence McKenna always made. And when, right. uh, you know, Terrence McKenna was a huge booster of, of psychedelics and a you know, very articulate one. And he, he poo pooed any other spiritual methodology, meditation and uh, you know, chanting and you know, yoga, anything else that, that people brought to him saying, well, can't you kind of get the same benefit without drugs? And his point was, well, you teach someone to meditate, you teach them yoga, they there 's no guarantee whatsoever that something's going to happen you know, they, could, they could spend a week doing it, they could spend a year doing it. who knows what 's going to happen. They may just get bored uh, and they 're going to wander away from this thing not knowing that there was a there there. If I give you you know five grams of mushrooms or three hundred micrograms of lSD and tell you to sit on that couch for an hour, you are guaranteed to have a radical transformation in your experience it's just it doesn 't matter who you are this thing this freight train of of significance is going to come bearing down on you, uh, and we just have to watch the clock and know it's going to happen, and that's a, that's a fact. But the the uh, so that's that's the the advantage because you're guaranteed to realize at the end of that episode that it is possible to have a radically different experience than you tend to have, and if you have a good experience, you're going to you're going to realize that 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 human life can be just unutterably sublime that it's possible to to feel at home in the universe in a way that you, you couldn't have previously imagined. But if you have a bad experience uh, and the bad experiences are every bit as bad as the good experiences are good, you, you will have just this, this how, this, this harrowing encounter with madness. And it's, 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 you know, it's as pathological as any, you know, lunatic who's, who's wandering the streets, uh, you know, raving to himself and completely cut off from others, you can have that experience and, and hopefully it goes away. And, you know, virtually every case it does go away, but it's, it's still, um, it's still rough and it still has, uh, has consequences for people. Um, Some of the consequences are good. I happen to think that, that, that it, it gives you a basis for compassion uh, in particular for for you know people who are suffering mental illness that you couldn't otherwise have but you know it's not an experience that I'm eager to have again and so i so i haven't you know my healthy respect for the power of psychedelics has led me to not take many for many years and it's been it's been years since i've taken anything and my my use tapered off in my 20s when i when i got into meditation and was spending more time on retreat and fe- beginning to feel that i was getting kind of hitting the center of the bullseye with meditation in a way that I was certainly not guaranteed to with psychedelics, that I, I basically stopped using everything and, and just practiced meditation. But th- there's no question that I, I wouldn't have become sufficiently interested in meditation, but for the experiences I had on LSD and, and MDMA in particular.
0: Have you had any experience with DMT or ayahuasca?
1: I haven't. I haven't. I've always uh, DMT is, is the one thing now that would be tempting because I, I haven't done it and it has such a, a short half-life. Uh, you know, the whole trip is is you know, it's something like ten minutes long. Yeah, so it's not shorter. You know, yeah, of, five to ten. Minutes. Yeah, yeah, it would be tempting, but I, have, I haven't done it. And um, what about you? Is that have you done either? I have. I
0: have. Uh, I have tried DMT, which I believe is dimethyltryptamine, which is sometimes, if I'm not mistaken, referred to as the spirit molecule. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's become uh, an, an area of research, um, although you know, some of it might not qualify as, as what you would consider research. Uh, I'm very fascinated by DMT. I My experience with it was... Uh, unique, uh, not terrifying, and I'd like to actually come back to the fear component, uh, it was it was a very manageable experience, complete physical and psychological disassociation, uh, where there was just, for me at least, pure whiteness it was just pure white and extremely acute hearing, now what, mm-hmm. com- what element of that hearing was actually external stimuli and what component of that was hallucin- uh, a hallucination, I can't say uh, it was a good experience. I don't feel compelled to repeat it, and I'm sure you've had those experiences. Ayahuasca in the more extended sort of ceremonial context uh, is something that I I do have plans to experience, and I'll report back when I have more to report. But I, I found that at least for me, the form factor of the substance, of course, has an impact on your experience, and that can be related to the the ritual or the 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 process of consuming it. Uh, but it can also be ph- uh, pharmacological in, in so much as I drink yerba mate tea very often, uh, and became a huge fan while I lived in Argentina, but I don't typically consume say the cold ready to drink yerba mates or the, uh, pre-bagged yerba mate that you steep as you would a normal cup of, of tea. I, I really go, I go through the process of putting the the, the chippings, if you want to call them that, into the gourd with the sticks and everything. And I sip it over over a period of hours. And I feel like the the biochemical effect is very different from, say, mainlining it by chugging 16 mm-hmm. ounces. And I felt like the DMT was the kind of crack cocaine version of uh, the ayahuasca experience. And so I, I've noticed for myself, at least, that a slightly longer period of time using, say, higher dose, you know, five to nine grams. And this is, that's a very personal thing. Obviously I'm not a doctor, don't play one on the internet, but, uh, as a, is a reset with psilocybin has a, a huge persistent therapeutic effect for a period mm-hmm. of months in some cases. And, yeah. uh, I'm hoping to get that from ayahuasca in a way that I did not with the five to 10 minute DMT experience. Uh, So so that's that's where I currently stand. But I'd be curious to know if you have any opinions on how someone can decrease the likelihood of having a horrifying, negatively life-impacting experience with hallucinogens. And I mean, I've been of the thought for a while now that lucid dreaming could provide some degree of rehearsal and practice with separating reality from irreality. Uh, or sort of objective truth from that which you're creating in your own mind to give you a slightly greater degree of comfort when you go into a psychedelic state. Whether or not that's true is, is of course, up to debate. But uh, do you have any thoughts on, on, on what characterizes the people aside from some type of latent psychosis or you know, split personality disorder? What, what can someone do or what should they do prior to a psychedelic experience to minimize the likelihood of having a hugely negative experience?
1: It's something I really don't have a an answer for that I'm confident in i mean, i would i' i would just be parroting the the standard advice about set and setting and you know your your mental set going in and the and your physical setting and your 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 social setting are, are obviously do a lot to set the trajectory of any experience but it's it there's a lot of of um, uncertainty in there and I you know i've i've had experiences where my set and setting seemed perfect and I just got catapulted into hell for reasons that, that I, I, I never understood. And there's right. n- there's no way to go back and understand them. So it's, it's, and I've had, yeah, I've had absolutely blissful experiences uh, under uh, conditions that were more or less identical. Uh, what, what I did find though, is that once I started having negative experiences I continued to to have them so right. it's like the, the the door to hell had been left ajar uh, whereas previously it just hadn't existed I, mean, I, I I distinctly recall what it was like to hear about bad trips on LSD and to have no idea what that could possibly mean I had I had done LSD maybe 7 or 10 times at that point and um, this is again in my my early twenties. I, I and I, I approached this, you know, very. I was a very committed, you know, serious, uh, you know, psychonaut in in a, you know, someone who was really kind of doing this not not recreationally, but really doing it to to discover something about the nature of my own mind and to and to uh, get free of of uh, suffering that that uh, I couldn't really see otherwise getting free of. And 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 so I, you know, at one point I was taking acid, I think, once a month. I was at an undergraduate at Stanford and was, you know, on the side, basically reinventing the 60s for myself Uh, (laughs) and, you know, reading, reading about Eastern philosophy. And and I just started learning to meditate. I hadn't yet gone on my first, my first extended retreat. And I was taking, you know, I used an isolation tank once and I, you know, I, I was, I was really trying to, and I had virtually no guidance apart from books. And I was just trying to to explore all of this, and I would say for my first ten trips on LSD, there was not even the, the, the subtlest intimation of the possibility of feeling bad on this drug. I mean, it was just I just got launched into an experience of the, just the most diaphanous and gorgeous profundity, where you just you know, the, the, the the world was it was just this sh- this shimmering reality bathed in energy and i was a part of that energy and and you know all of the 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 language of of um traditional mysticism made sense uh in a good way uh without any of the the dark night of the soul uh stuff coming in and but then the first time i so 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 that so so just you picture it going into each subsequent trip you would think, well, now, now my set and setting have to be perfect because my my expectation is that I'm going to just recapitulate this this perfectly sublime and happy experience. I'm taking the same batch of LSD. I'm, I've I've now got this down to a science in terms of where I want to be and who I want to be with while I do this and. You know, so I'm in. I'm in. You know, beautiful nature. You know, I'm in Muir Woods, or I'm. I'm just alone in my apartment. You know, listening to good music, or or whatever it is. But I'm safe, and there's nothing sketchy that's gonna gonna set me off. Uh, and I've never had a bad trip. But you know, there was there was some first trip that went uh, haywire, and then subsequently, no matter how good. The highs were in, in my, my subsequent trips that there was always something where I saw, wow, that was, it could have just gone sideways there uh, or did go sideways for some period of time. And then, then it just, the, the costs begin, began to seem uh, potentially too high for me and the upside. I, I felt like I'd already gotten the benefit of, of essentially having advertised to uh, this possibility of being much wiser and and, and happier than I tend to be. And so then I just decided I would I would go at it with, through another door of um, meditation. Uh, but I you know like you I, I felt that the half life of the of the positive effect of these good experience was on the order of of weeks and months. But I but I also felt that the the half life of the negative effects hmm. was just as long. So I you know I, I would have I had a bad trip you know one bad trip and I felt. You know, three months later, I was still dealing with the the neurophysiological consequences of that and the the interpersonal consequences.
0: Was that LSD or what was the substance?
1: uh, Yeah, that was LSD. Yeah, it it just so it seemed like it really seemed like a crapshoot. It just seemed like you're going to spin the wheel and see about see whether you're going to be a saint or a madman uh, for the (laughs) next ten hours, and 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 you know you know obviously you had a preference for for which it would be, but not much control over which it would be. And the the other issue for me with psychedelics is that what now I consider to be the crucial insight uh, that that is the the, the the center of the bullseye for w- what I would call a a, a spirituality that is uh, coincident with with a, a 21st century psychology and and, and secular science the, the the center of the bullseye insight is comes to this point of the nature of the self and whether or not it's an illusion and whether one can cut through that illusion at will you know you know if when you look for yourself you fail to find it in a way that is that is clear and compelling and frees you from from the tyranny of your own thoughts and 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 the suffering you you were experiencing a moment ago that that's the that's the center of the bullseye for me and the the ability to do that is 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 available through the the practice of meditation and psychedelics don't quite, don't Address that issue in a precise way. I mean, you you can you can be you can be hurled past any self problem on right. the right drug and, and experience you know kind of this glorious freedom from self. But what, one thing that that you get with that is that you get this this understanding, which I think is is a fallacious understanding, that if somehow freedom is dependent upon altered states of consciousness, that the, unless there's unless you're seeing Everything in technical color or the you know the, the, the it's at the peak of the fireworks show you're not going to be experiencing the most profound spiritual experience you can have, uh, and certainly you're not going to experience it once you come back down and everything is normal again but the 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 insight into selflessness that you get through through meditation is. That ordinary waking consciousness, I mean, precisely the consciousness in which we're having this conversation, in which I can, you know, I can see my phone, and if you tell me to turn up the volume, I can do that, and then I, you know, I can get my keys and I can get in the car and I can drive safely. Which ordinary consciousness is already completely free of self. And that can be recognized. The place you want to be able to run that experiment is in ordinary waking consciousness. You don't need to be you know, experiencing synesthesia for the first time on ayahuasca uh, and, you know, seeing, you know, you know, as Terence McKenna often describes, seeing people's meaning, you know, visually uh, beheld and, and have a complete transformation of your, you know, sensory apparatus in order to experience the loss of, the, the relevant loss of self. And so that's, that's, that's the, the other reason why I'm more focused on meditation than, than psychedelics at the moment.
0: Well, that. That is a topic I would love to expand upon, maybe in a round two. I always enjoy our conversations. I uh, want to let you uh, get back to everything that you need to get back to. Uh, what I'd encourage everyone to do is read Sam's material directly. Uh, listen to some of the debates or watch some of the debates. Go to SamHarris.org. The post that I referenced earlier, Drugs and the Meaning of Life, is is, is one of many uh, different articles that I, that I would suggest checking out another one is the riddle of the gun which maybe we'll uh get get into next time we chat but this is always fun for me sam we need to hang out more uh and, yeah and, yeah likewise <laughs> and uh let's uh let's have round two sometime no no huge rush yeah. but uh it'd be it'd be fun to, to grab a glass of wine sometime in the near future as well that'd, that'd be great i look forward to it all right sam well thank you very much and i will i'll talk to you soon
1: yeah, take care, bro. Okay, bye-bye. If you want more of The Tim Ferriss Show, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to 4hourblog.com.
0: fourhourblo Where you'll find an award-winning blog, tons of audio and video interview stories with people like Warren Buffett and Mike Shinoda from Lincoln Park, the books, plus much, much more. Follow Tim on Twitter at twitter.com slash T Ferris. That's T-F-E-R-R-I-S-S.
1: Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Tim Ferris. Until next time, thanks for listening.